Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now, the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And we are back with JFK Assassination Chokehold's uh, contributor, James Eugenio, one of five JFK Assassination Chokeholds that prove there was a conspiracy. You you hinted at this earlier. One of the, uh, the chokeholds has to do with the president's brain. A lot of interesting mysteries surrounding uh, the brain during the autopsy. Well, I'm really glad you brought that one up, Richard. That's one of them that I wrote, and I truly believe that this is sort of like our guiding light today, you know, sort of like a uh, a lighthouse in the distance that guides us to the truth. All right, the stuff about this Kennedy's brain has become, I believe, so malevolent and so really um, probative as far as evidence goes that, again, there's, I don't think there's any way out of this, all right? I mean, I would, I'm not a lawyer, but if I was a lawyer, I'd love to be presenting this stuff in court. You know, my first witness would be John Stringer. John Stringer was the official photographer for the uh, um, the Warren Commission. He was supposed to have taken the autopsy photos. If you can believe it, it wasn't until 1996, I believe, that he was placed under oath 
and questioned about the procedures that he used, all right, and the techniques that he used and the film brand that he used. The ARB, led by Chief Counsel Jeremy Gunn, did a very intelligent thing. Before they confronted him with the evidence, they asked him these kinds of questions, you know, so he couldn't switch his story if it clashed with the evidence. So once they questioned him, they brought him into a room and they put up on an easel what are supposed to be the official autopsy photos of Kennedy's brain. And Stringer was, to put it mildly, taken aback. He walked up to the pictures, examined them closely, and first he said, this is Ansco. I didn't use Ansco film. I used Kodachrome. Okay, excuse me. I used Kodak Ektachrome. All right? And you see these numbers here on the lower right-hand corner? This means this was part of a press pack. It was taken in series. That's why they have numbers. I didn't use a press pack. Okay? You know? So he didn't take these these photos are not his. So and so, well, that's what I'm going to get to next. And so Jeremy Gunn then asked him. Do you then on the basis of what you just said and saw. Deny that you took these photographs. And he said. If that's Ansco and if that's a press pack, I didn't take these pictures. And he later said the. They were both true, that it was ANSCO, okay, and it was a press pack, all right? So that would be my first witness. I would then call up any kind of practicing neurologist, and I would ask them, what is the average weight of a male brain, all right? And I know what the answer would be, about 1,340 grams, I would then have him look at the uh, supplemental autopsy of President Kennedy. And then I would say, now, what does it say there is the weight of Kennedy's brain at the supplemental autopsy? And the guy would say 1,500 grams. And I would say, well, isn't that more than the average by a significant number? And he would say yes. Then what I would start doing is I would start showing pictures of the back of Kennedy's car, the limousine, with all the blood and tissue blasted all over it. I would show films of Jackie Kennedy reaching out the trunk of the car to get part of the brain that was blasted away. You know, I would then show the Zapruder film to show the huge head explosion. Then I would read the testimony of Bill Hargis, who was one of the cyclists on the, and remember this, on the left side of Kennedy's car. And I would, and it would say that he was hit so hard that he thought it was a projectile. It was really part of Kennedy's brain. So in other words, 
we're supposed to believe that with all this demonstrative physical evidence of Kennedy's head being blown apart, of it being in the back of the car, out of the back of the car, to the left side on a policeman, all right, <clears throat> his head exploding in the air in the Zapruder film. We're still supposed to believe that Kennedy's brain was above average in weight. Then the last people I would call would be the witnesses at both Parkland and Bethesda who said they saw a severely damaged brain, sometimes as much as one-third of it gone. And there's about 12 or 13 of them. So is all this physical evidence wrong? You know, I don't think right. so. I, today, well, I, do, I do not believe for one instant that those pictures and those illustrations depict Kennedy's brain. And I believe that the main reason that this happened is that wherever Kennedy's brain really is today, all right, it would depict evidence of two bullet wounds to the brain. And on top of that, we have this fact. When I interviewed Henry Lee for the uh, film JFK Revisited, I did a pre-interview with him out here in Malibu. And I asked him, and, he's, and I asked him, I go, can you do a trajectory analysis in the, in, in the Kennedy case? And he said, you can't do one. And that isn't what I expected him to say, frankly. So I naturally I said, well, why? And he said, because neither wound was dissected. Kennedy's brain should have been what they call sectioned. That is, either in what they call a bread loaf style. In other words, you cut it like you're cutting a loaf of bread. Right, right, right. Okay, or what they call a pie section style, in which you cut it like a pie, all right, and you end up with like six or eight uh, triangular-type pieces. Now, the reason you do that, of course, is this will tell you, A, how many projectiles were fired, and B, where they went, all right? So why wasn't that done? Mm. Why, why wasn't that done? That's an incredible, that's an incredible failure of the JFK optic. To have someone be killed by a gunshot wound to their head and you don't section the brain, you know, again, right, because it, I believe they, that's because unexplainable. It, right, because it would show evidence of two bullets, which yeah. means no magic bullet theory, no, no lone gunman theory. Right. I, th I think that's a, that would be a logical and a very, I believe, strong conclusion to all this evidence. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. 
Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What about the autopsy sketches? Oh, well, then the, the, now those are very interesting because one of the things that the House Select, House Select Committee said in their report I think it's uh, volume 7, page 37, is that although there is some discrepancy between the, the uh, descriptions of the back of Kennedy's skull, all right, the people who saw it at Bethesda Medical Center where the autopsy was performed, they say that the back of the head was intact. That's what the report says. That is a lie. Because when the review board went ahead and declassified all this evidence that the House Select Committee had hidden, it turned out that just as many people as Bethesda at Parkland saw this hole in the back of Kennedy's head, and they drew pictures of it. They actually drew pictures of it, of what it looked like. All right? So this is this is really remarkable stuff that was declassified. In other words, it's an exit wound. He was shot from the front or the side, not the back, the fatal wound. Yeah, well, see, that's then this relates to another point that we brought up in the book. That is the strong evidence that there was a front shot, okay? And what it, what this is largely based upon is the fact that in the front of Kennedy's x-rays of his skull, there are a multitude of what can only be considered dust-like particles in the front, all right? But... The larger particles from Kennedy's brain are in the back. What this, what, and by the way, 
we got this from what was supposed to be the House Select Committee's expert, all right? He said that the smaller particles will stay near where the bullet entered, okay, because they don't have any real power because they're so small, all right, to travel through tissue, all right, whereas the larger particles will be able to do that. The larger particles in this case are in the midsection or to the rear of Kennedy's skull. And that is very strong evidence that Kennedy was hit by a frontal bullet. And if you combine that with the 42 people who said they saw a blasted out, a vulsive wound in the rear of Kennedy's skull, that's pretty powerful. I believe. And then, of course, I don't have to tell you this, but then you combine this with what the action of Kennedy in the Zapruder film, all right, which is back into the left, you know, then I think you have a very powerful case that Kennedy was hit from the front. Did any of this, well, some of this came up during the, the House Select Committee in 1979, right? When they found No, it no, actually it didn't. It didn't? Okay. None of it? Yeah, the only thing that came up was the Zapruder film. Uh, the thing about the particles, Sturdivant got the wrong x-rays, all right? He got the enhanced x-rays, which pretty much white out the smaller particles in the front of the skull. So they're really not visible, all right? When, the x when these radiologists who we know, like David Mantic, okay, saw these things, all right, he saw the unenhanced version in which you can see all these small dust-like particles in the front of the skull. And that was, that was the big giveaway. And then, of course, they covered up the evidence of the hole in the back of Kennedy's skull. So this really did not come out until the, uh, you know, I guess I've been using that term so much, I guess I should explain what it is to any of your listeners who don't know what it is. When Oliver Stone's film came out in 1991, it created a giant furor, okay? Because at the end of his film, he had a tagline which said, the files of the last investigation of President Kennedy's death, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, are classified till 2029. Well, when the public learned this, they started doing a lot of phone calls, a lot of letters, etc. This forced Congress to have hearings. And as a result, a citizens panel was put together called the Assassination Record Review Board. And they went ahead and started declassifying all this information. It was a very extraordinary move by Congress to do this, all right, because it usually takes years to declassify these documents, right? Well, the review board went to work and they declassified something like 60,000 documents in about four years, which is really remarkable. And this is how we found out about this stuff. That's how we found out about this. So, it's indirectly because of Oliver Stone's 1991 movie that I can talk to you about this evidence. Right. 
Right. They were all to be de declassified by 2017, but they were not, correct? That is, that's absolutely correct. And Donald Trump actually tweeted about it about two weeks before uh, they were supposed to be finally declassified. And then what happened? Well, on the day they were supposed to be declassified, the FBI and the CIA went into Trump's office, and one way or another they intimidated him not to do it. So they were first delayed six months, then Trump delayed them another three years. In other words, into the next presidency. Well, we know Biden was the next president, and then he deferred them for another, I believe, year, and then he did something even worse. He now has changed the whole rules of the review board and how they can declassify documents. He's, he's, Congress has let an executive in the White House, the president, overrule an act of Congress. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.